Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. The Square Ball Podcast. Well, hello, welcome to the show. Dan Moylan with you from The Square Ball, joined by Angus Kinnear, Leeds United's Chief Executive Officer. Thank you for coming on again, Angus. Appreciate it. Pleasure. My favourite day of the year. <laughs> well, we realise that you don't have to do this as well. And I think it's important probably to, to lay out a couple of things up front, because these, these are the, the common criticisms that, that come our way um, when, we, when we do this. Like, you're here without fortune nor favour. You know, you're very much here of your own free will. There have been no bribes exchanged, no gifts of shirts, nothing, you know, payment, anything like that. It's just a chat. No, this is, I think this worked well at the start of every season just to have a review of the season that's gone past and, and, and talk about the season going forward. And I think, you know, I mean, Andrea spoke at, at length this week, but I think I can speak with a little bit more granularity and a little bit more detail about things that uh, fans are concerned about and, uh, and just show that we're transparent and, and try to put them first. And you haven't vetted any questions. Um, you haven't said anything's off the table. We've had a chat before. We've come on just so we know what we're going to be talking about. But it's it's anything goes basically with no you reason. Can, you can ask whatever you like, whether I answer it. It's a different <laughs> matter. Well, but... Fair enough. Um, and I should stress as well, like we don't speak for all Leeds fans, nor would we want to. I'm just going to raise some of the the common questions that have come up among the fans over the last year since we last spoke, because there's been a lot of stuff, concerns, questions, issues, and at different times, like people have been quite angry over the last year or so about things that have happened at Leeds, but I'm not going to be shouting at you or engaging in sort of personal attacks on anyone at the club. We're just here to have a chat about what's going on at Leeds. So let's go back then to that starting point of, of when we spoke last year. And, and can you talk us through the season that unfolded from the club's point of view, from your, from your point of view? Because we've heard from Andrea, what's, what's your take on it? Well, I think um, somebody summed it up as a, a forgettable season with an unforgettable end. And I think that's that's the way I, I view it. I mean, it was a huge disappointment to to everybody at the club. Um, it fell well below the standards that we expect for the, for the club, and um, and you know ultimately we go into every season wanting to make supporters feeling proud to belong to Leeds United, and I don't think we achieved that, and that's a that's a failing. And uh, although the ethos in the club is that we succeed together and we and we fail together, and it's a very it's a very strong feeling, and it's and it goes right from the backroom to the players to the to the board to all the, all, all the staff at Ellen Road, ultimately, we know the responsibility for last season falls squarely on the shoulders of the board. You know, we're, we're in the position to, to manage the club. We, we've, you know, got commitments to the fans that we want to make them proud and we want to push the club forward. And last season felt like, uh, like you know, we had, had departed from the trajectory that we'd been on for the previous three years. And what I would say, though, is, you know, I think there is some, there, I think there is some context around that and it is a context of, of evolving a club, particularly a club which has been in the Championship and League One for for so long for 16 years of evolving the club at every level into a Premier League club is a significant challenge and if you look at the the stats you know the majority of clubs get relegated within the first two seasons it's 50% in the first year 50% in the second year roughly so it's it's you know almost three and four are going straight back down and our objective was to to beat those odds that that was that was the basic one and I think you know we had one superb season 
sadly for everybody, it was mostly behind closed doors, but it was a superb season. I think you know, to finish ninth, to finish with the highest points total for 20 years, to play the type of football we did, to get some of the results we did was wonderful. But as we'd seen the season before, Sheffield United had started with a fantastic season, then we were relegated the second season. So the objective, whilst we wanted to build on the first season, ultimately was to, was, was to stay up. And though we achieved that not the way that we wanted to, we've created a foundation that we can now, we can now build upon. Did you want to build on the first season though? Because you said to us last year there was a there was an active decision to to build a squad for two years, and people have said, given how close we actually came to going down, that the decision to stand still, uh, i.e., to build that squad to last for two years, was a mistake. And at worst, I've seen it described as arrogant. I don't think it was arrogant. I think there was a um, there's a reality around how much we can spend, um, and I think we felt that spending big in the first season, which we undoubtedly did, by the way, in a, a huge level of investment. Uh, gave us the best chance of building a squad for two seasons because those players would be able to bed in. And we hoped that with a couple of the two additions that we did make, plus some of the younger players that we hoped would come through and we believe would come through, that we'd be in position to be stronger. Now, it would have been unrealistic to think that we would move from, you know, ninth to finish in the top in the top sixth. But, you know, we hope for a mid-table finish. And and if, if you can do that in your first two seasons, then I think that is incredibly successful. And, you know, we fell short of that, for, you know, by... A number of points, and and there's lots of good reasons why that why that happened. But ultimately, the, the the you know the key objective of staying up was was achieved. And I think the big challenge is you know people talk about second season syndrome, and you know there is a reality behind that that in trying to evolve your squad from a squad which is fundamentally filled with good championship players to one that can compete re- you know repeatedly in mid table in the Premier League, that takes some time. You know you ha- we had players that are. Would, would have been good championship players, good championship squad players, and you have to cycle those out for new players who are who are who are Premier League standard. And it's you know no no secret now that a, you know a good solid Premier League player pretty much starts at twenty million, and if you can get them for below that, you've done re- you know you've done really well. You can't do that in one season; it's probably two to three seasons. And I think in this third season, we're now in a position where we have um, we have a Premier League squad which is which is capable of of competing in the mid table for the long term. A lot of people flagged up where they thought weaknesses were in the squad last season, and I guess we're seeing a repeat of that uh, this summer, <clears throat> excuse me, to an extent, which we'll come on to. But I look at the example of like Conor Gallagher, for example. Everyone could see we were short in midfield. There was a failure to secure Conor Gallagher, but then no alternative. Can you address that? Yeah, this fits with um, with you know a combination of of um, you know Marcelo's exacting recruitment standards. You know, we know that he had players that he really he really liked and wanted us to pursue. There was not a lack of alternatives. There's a number of alternatives that were that were that were presented to him, and ultimately, you know, he concluded with the with the board that he didn't feel they were going to be they, they were going to be strong enough. And, and you know, part of the challenge with things like that is is and this is where you know one of the reasons Marcelo was so successful. I mean, he was he was he was successful because he was so true to his principles. And one of the principles was that every player had to come into the team and win their position. And you know, that happened when we signed Ben White, and you know, Ben White on his first day was put in the under-23s under 20, under dressing room and told that, you know, if he played well enough, one day he might make the first team. <laughs> and we had similar challenges with, 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 with Connor, where he was on the bench, at, uh, had been on the bench and around the, out, uh, around the sort of outside of the, the first team at Chelsea. He needed a guarantee that he was going to get first team football. That was a guarantee that we knew Patrick Vieira had given him at, at Crystal Palace. And it wasn't a guarantee that we could give him because that's not the way Marcelo worked. And there's lots of strengths in the reason in that thinking, in that every player has to earn their place in the team. 
but sometimes it can be challenging in, to, in, in recruiting people who are at a career stage where they need effectively a guarantee that they're going to play. Because fans hear the terms like exacting standards um, when it comes to Marcelo's recruitment and the response to that is often, you haven't backed him enough, you haven't done enough. Do you feel like you did enough? I think we, uh, we, we challenged him uh, enough at every occasion to, to talk about, you know, was the squad big, big enough? Did we need greater strength in depth? And um, the things which made Marcelo successful, these principles, you know, so, you know, one of them was he wanted a small squad. That isn't a universally bad idea, actually. You know, one of the, one of the strengths of a small squad is he has a group of players who are absolutely focused on delivering for him. Everyone's involved. Everybody's playing. The training sessions are, are really tight. And there's a massive strength behind that. But, you know, Marcelo said when Victor and I went out to see him in, uh, in Buenos Aires that, he, you know, his methods were one, you know, I think he described it as they were methods of, uh, of extremes. And one of the extremes of, of having the small squad is the benefits of, of a tight, focused squad who can deliver on the pitch for you. The opposite to that is that you end up with a squad which doesn't have the depth to compete in a, in a very competitive league. It's similar on the fitness front. You know, Marcelo gave us the fittest team in the championship and the fittest team in the Premier League in the first season. And that was absolutely key to our success. And, and you know, whenever we look to hire a coach in the future, their approach to fitness is going to be key because we thought it was so, so critical. And, it, you know, it transformed many of the players, you know, technically as well, because he just took them to different levels of fitness. You know, they all weighed five or six kilograms less. They ran further and faster. Central to his plan and, 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 and it was part of his genius the yin to that yang was that it could leave you with the, the most injured squad in the in the division and we had more you know soft muscle tissue injuries than than any other team so we challenged him on the squad side we challenged him on the on the injury on the injury record but you know he was um he was you know a man of his principles and i think we've proven in this window we're not against building a bigger squad we're not against strengthening the squad we're not against being creative in terms of the types of players that uh, that we recruit we're prepared to invest again, as, we, as we've demonstrated this this summer. But um, you know, we had to work within within his within his principles, and they'd been so successful for us; it would have been foolish to depart from them. Is it, um, or could it be construed as, as a mistake to put so much power into one man's hands? And is that a failure at, at, at boardroom level? Do you view that as a mistake looking back, or was, or was it simultaneously both a strength and a weakness in the end? I think. It's, I mean, I think about it all. The, I think about it all the time. You know, we 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 go over how we could have managed the situation better. Marcelo was very clear again when we hired him that when you hire him, you hire all of him and you hire all his principles and all his methodologies and they're not for changing. You know, he's a man in his, in his late 60s. He's dedicated his whole life to arriving at his philosophy of football. And, you know, we knew that that's what we were, we were, we, we were adopting. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a model where he was going to be, he was going to be the head coach and we do recruitment and we do under 23s. You know, he dominated every decision on the footballing side within within the club. He had Victor's support, he had Andrea's support. You know, we worked as a team. I think we worked really well together. We're not looking for, for credit, but I think, um, you know, we created an environment for Marcelo, which made him be as successful and more successful than he's been in, anywhere else. But it does mean that he, uh, that it was, um, you know, his management style is 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 very, uh, you know, dictatorial from that front and we had to accept that. And, and I don't think it was unreasonable because it's also been amazingly successful. You know, we'd had three of the best seasons in the last 20 years of, of, of Leeds United history. So going with another season, we knew there'd be challenges. I think Andrea spoke, um, spoke, spoke this week about uh, at the start of the season saying, was another season the right thing? And Marcelo said there'd be challenges. He'd always said his methods had, had a breaking point and that one group of players couldn't last with them forever. And there was a discussion between Andrea and Marcelo about whether then was the time to depart or not. 
But we felt, you know, after the finish we'd had, after finishing ninth, the fantastic run of results, I think we were third in the form table for the over the last 10 games, that, you know, he had to stay for, an, for another season. So it's one of those situations in life where, the, irrespective of how many times I replay it, I can't really work out a way that I, we could have managed it differently to make it significantly more successful. If he was dictatorial in his style, was he difficult to work with? It's been, you know, it's been one of the greatest privileges of my career to work alongside him. I was going to say for him, because that's, <laughs> that's what it felt like. I mean, he, you just felt you were in the presence of greatness in every meeting. You know, I could listen to, oh, I was forced to listen to him for hours, but I could <laughs> listen to him for hours because his, his, his perspective on football was just, was fascinating. And, and you know, he was, a, he was a truly original thinker. There were no cliches. Everything was original thought. But there were times when you just, I think Andrea Victor and I just wanted him to flex his principles just to be a little bit more pragmatic because ultimately we had to protect the status of, of the team. And ultimately, I think when you're playing in a league as challenging as the Premier League, when you're a club, you know, that is just evolving into a Premier League team, there were moments that we needed to be more pragmatic. But, you know, we, we all loved, I mean, I mean, that's why the fan base loved him as well, because we live in a world where people who are principled are few and far between. And when you find someone who is true, who is truly principled, it's difficult to criticise them. And do you think it's because people latched onto that, that, respond, that the response to his sacking was so strong? Absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, it was... The funny thing was, you know, we we felt similar, although we were, you know, we had to make the decision. I think ultimately we made the right decision and we would do the same thing again. You know, we felt the same. You talked about on the show about growing through a grieving process. Well, we went on, we were, we were in a grieving process. We'd, we'd gone through, you know, the most fantastic three years. There was the sense that this was probably going to be the last season and that, you know, Marcelo would actually agree that, you know, and it would be a mutual decision that we'd need to, to evolve from his management. But we wanted that last season to be the season that he deserved. And we'd had such a great season without the fan base. You know, we wanted Ellen Road to be rocking and taking on the top teams in the country and giving all the supporters what they'd waited for, for 20 years for. So I completely, um, you know, bizarre, but I, you know, totally empathised with the fans, for the fans' position because there were times when he felt, you know, he felt he was bigger than the club. And I think what we had to remember was no one's bigger than the club and ultimately that's what we've got to got to protect. But, I completely understood the, uh, you know, the emotions that, that that surrounded his departure. I think there was anger as well in the way that it was perceived to have been handled. And I'm, I'd like to draw on, um, well, talk about the sacking, but also your your program notes in the wake of it, in which you said, knowing the requirement to evolve from Marcelo at the end of the season meant the process to identify and secure a successor was ongoing and well advanced. Do you think that was slightly disingenuous because we didn't know as fans that that you'd identified a requirement to to move on from Marcelo? I know you just said it to me now. Um, Andrea said it in the interview with Phil Hay. We didn't know that as a fan base at the time, and that was in your notes, and it was pitched in a way to suggest that we should have known. Yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't think anybody knew. I think it was a, I don't, I don't think that was that was the point of the notes. I think it was just explaining where we were. I think there was a lot of, there was a sort of sense that we had um, done the dirty on Marcelo, or you know, stabbed him in the back, and you know that Jesse was waiting in the wings. When the reality is, I think any any good club who's managed appropriately we'll be talking to managers all the time and seeing people's careers progress and, and seeing where they're, you know, when they're available on the basis, particularly when you've got a manager who signs one year contracts and particularly when he signs the contracts normally on the, the evening before the, se- the, the season starts. So I think it was prudent and good management that we, we, we had relationships in, in and, and were discussing to coaches and it was no secret for Marcelo. And it was also no you know, internally, we knew that we'd had the conversation with Marcelo whether one more year was right or not. And there were times when he 
had suggested that maybe it wasn't. He suggested that with Andrea and, and ultimately it was Andrea convincing him to, to stay for another year and that that was right. And that all gave us the feeling that this was probably the, this was probably the last year. And, and, and he had said on numerous occasions, there is only so much time my methods last with the same group of players. So either we have to totally you know, change the team or you have to change the manager. So, so that was the that was the feeling. And by the you know, it wasn't a done deal. It wasn't an agreement, and we'd have reviewed it at the end of every season, like like we had done every season previously. But I'd have thought, you know, my 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 feeling would be that we'd have come to a mutual agreement that that was the last season. And with him signing his contracts on on the eve of the season, I'm, I'm just imagining the scenario where uh, he says, "No, you fall out around the the signing of it the day before the season starts." What happens then? I mean, it was you know, we always said that it was you know. We, we were confident, but it it was nerve wracking because you know he has he had a uh, you know he had a track record of of being quite volatile in those situations. But to be fair to him, across the period, he was as good as his word, and and it wasn't nerve wracking because ultimately you need you need the paperwork for his visa and for him to sit on the bench. So there's some logistics. So I think it's actually the club secretary who was probably sweating the most. But you know the year to year contract thing worked you know worked well for us for for, for four years. Do you think the short term contract? maybe affected recruitment to some extent or made it a little bit harder because I'm looking at the January window and everybody said Leeds should have moved for somebody in the January window and we didn't and we saw what happened in the wake of all that. You could be accused of trying to recruit for Jesse Marsh in January because we know we went for Brendan Aronson at the time. Were you serving up players that Marcel didn't want but that maybe Jesse Marsh would want? No, I mean, at the time, the because of where we were and the status of where we were, it was the January window was very much a short-term one and it was looking for players who could come in and make an impact to come in and save the season. So the only person that we were recruiting for at that time was Marcelo. And to be honest, if we were recruiting more broadly or recruiting for someone else, we would assign people, but we didn't because we were fully behind Marcelo. And, and, you know, to think, just to make it clear, it wasn't like we were looking for a coach the whole time. You know, everything was focused around Marcelo. You know, we were meeting Marcelo every day. Victor was spending a whole load of time with him. This sort of assessment of the market and good coaches in the market is something that Victor does behind the scenes so that he's always got he's always got good knowledge of the market in the same way as that he'll you know should always have great markets of who of the who are the best right wingers out there it's just a standard process so it's not one which consumes the board the board for the season were absolutely fully behind Marcelo and there was there was no group of people who were more vested in Marcelo being a success in that season it looks like um bad time almost like the the, the sacking came in a sort of a semi-uncontrolled manner because he went in February, which then closes the door to the January window and getting something in place for a new coach. Any regrets around the timing of that? Well, I think what we uh, we wanted, we felt Marcelo deserved the January transfer window and, and we felt he deserved as much time as possible to, to, to salvage the situation because he'd done some, he had done such a fantastic job for us. So there, you know, there weren't discussions about, in January, I, I completely believed he'd, he'd see the rest of the season out because he was our coach you know there weren't long discussions around you know there were, there were some worrying results and we did, we ran the January transfer window around Marcelo so there were players and I think it's very public you know we, we've made there were players that were available to us there were bodies that I think we believed we we should get in and, and Marcelo was clear that he didn't and that you know they weren't going to they weren't going to strengthen us and you know what we did know is that there was absolutely no point buying players or loaning players that Marcelo doesn't want because they just destabilise the squad and, and they cost money, which is which is ultimately wasted. Because he'd said before at Marcelo in interviews that he does want players, but the players that he wants are of a, of a certain value. Were we not able to go and get those players? For, 
the type of quality. I mean, he he made a you know he made a joke once that if we'd have presented him with Lionel Messi, he'd have told us he wasn't good enough in the air, and that was the case. I mean, there were I don't think there were names on the list that were out of budget. I think there were names on the list that just simply weren't available at that time. And the challenge with the January the January market, uh, and I know people will be sick of me telling this, and I'll be I'll be saying it again next January is that is that good players aren't available in the January market because they are normally playing for good teams and doing well in those teams and therefore aren't available at that at that particular you know that particular time. So are you are looking at people, you know, who are on the fringe of the team whose whose season's not going in the way that it should be going. So that's where, you know, Van der Beek was an option and Harry Winks was an option. But the top players in the Premier League and and the other challenge in January is we needed we needed people who could who Marcelo felt could make the transition really quickly. And Marcelo was very, very clear and had always been very clear. He needed six weeks for people to be able to, to, you know, to learn to play for him. And even if you do something early in the January transfer window, six weeks takes you towards the end of February. And at that time, it, you know, it, it, it's too late. So it is, it was, I always thought with, with Marcelo, it was going to be hard to do, to do meaningful business in January. Do you think the system just broke down as a whole? I think it was, it was a number, it was a number of factors. I think, you know, injuries were, were a real problem. and. Again, he was, you know, the fitness levels were so demanding on the players that we knew we'd end up getting soft tissue injuries. Um, you know, more and more players were, you know, what Rob Price and the team sort of say, were in the red zone, you know, where they're playing at a level where they are close to, close to breaking down. I think any team, particularly a team of our size, if, you know, you lose someone like Patrick um, effectively for the whole season and Patrick had scored 17 goals the season before, and I don't know, you know, I don't know quite how many points that generated. But even if he'd had a season where he just scored eleven goals rather than the two, I think he scored two in the end. That's eight, nine points more, and that takes you out of the out of the relegation zone. So I think you know injuries didn't help us. And I think um, I think there were also challenges with the tactical approach that other other teams took. And I mean, people talk us about as being you know being found out, but I think we were so true to our principles and and just sometimes didn't have that tactical pragmatism pragmatism that you need to stay in and around games. And when you're in games and you're 2-0 down after 10 minutes, you've pretty much lost them in the in the Premier League. But I think it was it was a failing at all levels across across the club. Our players last season in terms of effort and endeavor and passion, I couldn't commit them. I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, criticize them. I think we've got an absolutely fantastic group of players and if you look at the number of games that we won in the last minute or saved in the last minute, you know you've got a team that I think is really true to Leads ethos of being of selflessness and and and, and passion and, and and playing for each other, but I think and having spoken to the team, I don't think anybody in the team, I don't think there any was any individual of the team who technically had a better season than they'd had the season before. So I think you know we've, as I said, internally we've 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 taken uh, everyone's taken collective responsibility for from recruitment to managing the manager to the coach to the injury scenario to individual player performances. You know that. We, we collectively just weren't good enough. Did the players lose faith in it? I think for the for the players, it's really, you know, Marcelo had given them so much and they all know they owe him a debt of gratitude and they do have a debt of gratitude to him. And they were very, very disappointed when, when he left. But I think when you're being beaten so comprehensively regularly, and for anybody who's played, you know, any level of football, you know that, it's really challenging to go out every week, both home and away, and be on the end of some some real some real beating. So I think there was definitely the confidence in the system was was shaken and 
unfortunately, it's a difficult sy- system to play when the confidence isn't there because it requires people to be bold. It requires people to take, you know, to take responsibility, to take risks. Um, you know, if you look at the first season, the Premier League, where we were playing it around the back four and the ki- and the keeper and getting, you know, hemmed in in corners and then breaking for breaking free and scoring goals, it's brilliant when it works well. But you need players to be bold, and I think I think the confidence was shattered. And I also think emotionally and physically, they they're struggling. Now, you've addressed this uh, a little bit earlier on, but it's worth possibly saying again and getting on the record. Do you feel like you've got a debt of gratitude, you and the board, to Marcelo? Absolutely. Andre said it in, in, his, in, in his interview. I mean, he is, I think he will always be a legend at the club. I don't think that Leeds United would have been promoted almost with any other manager. You know, there's, some real, there's some really good sort of championship specialists, you know, people like Steve Bruce, who've got teams promoted five or six times. I think the scale of Leeds United and the challenges it faced, we need, we need a, you know, we needed a maverick. We need somebody tore up the rule book and completely changed everything and changed the culture and changed the expectation and re-engaged with the fans and, and challenged the players. And, you know, whilst it didn't end the way we wanted it to, I don't think we can speak highly enough of him. He was, he was a genius and he was charismatic and he unified a city and I think he transcended football. And, um, Andrea, Victor, and I, and Parag all owe him a debt of gratitude, and and and, uh, and I think the you know the club and the city does as well. What did you think of the sack the board chance towards the end of the uh, of the Brighton game? Was any of that warranted? Was it fair? How did you feel in that moment? Well, I, I felt um, you know we want everybody to feel you know positive about Leeds United, and we have a, I think we have a group of you know the custodianship of the club and the, and and the management of the club are, are you know are full of genuine people who want the best for Leeds United, so. It's, you know, I couldn't pretend it's not sad to hear because we're not in it for, 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 for sort of personal adulation, but I want people to feel proud of the club and feel that we're taking it in the right direction and it's in safe hands. Um, but I completely understand at the moment, that, that at that moment, the, um, the frustration that they felt and I completely understand the need to, to blame somebody. And, you know, ultimately we are, we are to blame in that, in that situation. I think it was, I do think if support, I and mean, it's, it's very different, you know, when, when you're, not playing very well in a football match and the emotions are raw, I think those types of comments are understandable. I'd hope that across the course of the last, you know, four to five years of our custodianship, fans could could step back and say that whilst we've got some things wrong, we've put the club on a on a different trajectory. I think we're putting we're putting supporters first. I think the club is is much stronger. I think the future's bright. And so hopefully when, in, in more rational moments, I think hopefully supporters will see that we're, uh, you know, the intention's right and that we're moving the club in the right direction. What did you make of the last dozen games then, um, of uh, the season? They were, um, I mean, they were, cha- they were challenging to watch, but I was encouraged because I felt, you know, the, the players continued with their high levels of, of endeavour and, and, you know, the running was fantastic and, and the effort was fantastic. I think they responded to Jesse. I think it was, it was not saying it was better, but sometimes you just need a change. And Jesse's approach is is, is very different. And I, he did a really good job in galvanising the squad and giving them the belief that they could they could change they could change things. And I think if you look at the points per game pre Jesse and a post Jesse, there was a, there was a significant change. And you know, with Jesse, if he keeping those points per game, we'd have actually finished you know mid table. But I was delighted, but not surprised with the support. I mean, other than the sack the board chance, which which you know which which I understood. The support for the team was 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 wonderful, right to the right to the last minute. And if you speak to any of the players, it made the difference. You know, both home both home and away, it was the thing that got that got us over the line. So I think you know when Jack scored the uh, the goal at Brentford, there was a sort of moments of uh, of elation. 
but there was really no satisfaction because that's not where we wanted to be. And I think we, you know, we, we could have, we could have done better. Do you think Jesse Marsh has got quite a bit to prove to the fans? Have we, have we seen the real Jesse Marsh? Have we seen the, the football that you think he's capable of? I'd split it into two. So I think from a, from a character perspective, I think, I think we've seen the character of Jesse Marsh. You know, when, when Jesse came and, and took the job, you know, I was thinking, not sure, not sure this is the greatest idea, you know, from a career perspective, you know, we were, we're in a tough, a tough spot and he's a sought after coach and taking a team which potentially could have been relegated and he could have been managing the championship and he was up for that challenge and he was very confident that, that he could, you know, get us on the right track. So I think in terms of his passion and his character, the supporters have had a good representation of what he can deliver. In terms of football, I don't think we can judge him on his football at all. He came in to do a very specific job, which was to keep us up. He had to make some very pragmatic decisions. They're not all tied to the football that he wants to play or hopes to play. He had to come in and, and make a judgment call of, of how much adaptation the players could take at that point of the, of the season, what they could deliver when confidence was low. And, uh, I think he handled it perfectly in terms of grinding out the results. But if you look at the reasons why we hired Jesse, and I know there's a there's an obsession with the lack of width, but actually the key pillars that he he works around are very very similar to Marcelo. So his teams have always been the hardest running in whatever league they've played in. All his three Red Bull teams were the, were the hardest running, but they also led the divisions in most cases in terms of uh, chances created, shots on goals, and goals scored. So he is a he is a manager that. That wants to go out, I think, and give supporters the, the brand of football that Ellen Road wants. And actually, we had we had this discussion with him about the uh, about the uh, Calgary game. And uh, when they came back to three two, and we were saying, Jesse, you know, at three 0 up, shouldn't you have been, um, you know, shouldn't you have been sitting back? Could you have dropped the two midfielders in? You know, slightly nervous that, that that you know we could have lost the game. And he was like, No, no, because he said, I knew, you know, I knew we'd score six. It didn't matter. So I think he has. Um, he's got an ambitious and and he wants to play an ambitious and a flamboyant and attacking style. But I think it will be mixed with a uh, a more pragmatic approach to defending, a more pragmatic approach to set pieces, and I think that will keep us in games and give us the ability to to win more games by still being in them as as you come to the final third. So that's quite a big call on the three all because we were well a couple of centimeters away from it being three all. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. But I think it, it shows. Uh, it just shows where he is. He is philosophically. He wanted that team to, p- to play a full ninety minutes, which is why the the uh, the rest of the team had played ninety minutes of Man City two days before. He wanted them to play a full ninety minutes, get it under their belt, and he wanted to, them to attack from start to finish. Just while we're talking about um, you getting flack, uh, any regrets on the program notes? Because I mentioned before about uh, the stuff you wrote in the wake of uh, of Bielsa's sacking and, and Marsh's appointment. There was stuff about football governance where you touched on Maoism, which felt a little bit misplaced. Any thoughts on that? I think the, the decision I made on the, on the programme notes is that most chief executives don't write their programme notes. And when I first came, somebody, you know, they assumed that I'd have, a, I'd have a ghostwriter. And I actually thought that it was quite a good platform to have a regular dialogue with the supporters and tell them what's going on and actually put some time and, and effort into it. But actually doing it's actually pretty boring. So I try and make it entertaining i try and make it something that people want to read and therefore elements of it are tongue-in-cheek and um and i know some people like it and some people some people hate it but it, it's it's supposed to it you know i thought if i was going to do it i'd try and do it properly and i think with the comments on football governance the uh, the mistake made there was that i was writing to a Leeds united audience who read my program notes regularly and, and know the kind of context with them i know the readership is really is really very small and it was probably naive to put um to write in that tonality at a time when 
it was quite likely that some of those contexts, that those things would have been taken out of context and covered in the in the mainstream press. So you know that was that was never my intention. Um, I stand by my my belief on the changes in football governance. I think it's uh, I think it's really strange that uh, that you know football in in Britain, which has the best elite product in the world, the deepest and my most diverse footballing pyramid with 92 professional clubs and two leagues below that, which could be professional, which I think obviously has room for for improvement in governance. I mean, it's now actually starting to to deliver on the international stage as well with the with 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 the England male team and the and the England ladies team, and I think it's pretty odd that so many people think that making letting the government run it's going to be a good idea. Um, that was the point I was trying to make. I'd like to move on if I can to um, the sale of Calvin Phillips and Rafinha and the transfer policy overall. One of the big criticisms, the questions as co- uh, questions around these have come on the size of the fees. So, can you just talk us through that? from your perspective because I think many fans feel like we've been shortchanged on both deals. Yeah. I think there's 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 two things to look at it. The first is the construction of the fee itself and there are many elements which go into that which are not seen in the headline figure that's reported. So the first thing is the headline figure that's reported isn't always correct, but even when it is, there are elements which supporters can't see. So one of them for instance will be how much is paid up front. And that is really significant. So if you have £50 million, particularly inflation at 10% at the moment, if you have £50 million paid over five years, which would be the sort of standard, then the £10 million you're receiving in five years' time is worth significantly less than having it now. If you get all of that money up front, it's worth 20 to 30% more in total. So because of the transfer business we wanted to do, we had put a premium on receiving the money up front and that's how we were, how we were negotiating it. So that's the first thing. The second thing to think about is the other parties in the transfer who may be getting a share of the transfer fee and whether they do get that share or don't get that share. And that can include the player and it can include the, and it can include the agent. So we're talking Deco here. I know he's a good friend of yours. <laughs> um, and there are different deals where they get rewarded and there's other deals where they're taking the player to a different club where, where they don't. So you don't see those factors. And, and, the, player, and the player as well can, can, can be on a, on a share of the transfer fee. So when you take... You know what I know about the staging of the payments, and what I know about the parties that we didn't have to pay in both those deals for very good reasons. The net to the club is effectively pretty much the, is the full amount that you see on the uh, on, on the transfers versus a whole lot of hidden payments, which could be you know ten, fifteen, twenty, three lots of ten, fifteen, or twenty percent going to different parties. So, so that so I think that's the first thing, and I think you know we were we. The figures that we received were, were very healthy because we've you know the net that we've got on all those transfers is as high as it possibly could be. The second thing is just around the, the, the dynamics of the market and how long a player has on his contract, which makes a which makes a huge difference. Which club he's prepared to go to, how many clubs are in for him. I mean, the first thing to say is that you know Calvin and and, uh, and Rafa, they behaved immaculately. You know, you couldn't criticise them at all. They both said they both made it clear of their desire to leave. On both cases, it was for, it was for football reasons, and they were very valid football reasons and. But they both only wanted to go to one club. So we had a lot of competitive tension for Rafinha particularly, but he had no interest in playing in the Premier League for anybody else other than Leeds United. He wanted to go to Barcelona. So that lack of competitive tension definitely impacts the, impacts the price. And so I think in the end, obviously, there was no one who has a more vested interest in getting the highest, the high prices possible than we, because we, we, knew, we knew we needed it all to, to reinvest in the squad. I think the prices we've got are... are um, uh, you know, hugely competitive. And I think if you actually compare them to, so the third thing, if you compare them to what else happens in the market, 
there are always some some outliers. So on one hand, you've got Jack Grealish at 100 million and you've got Damari Gray at, at 1 million. You know, Jack Grealish is not 100 times better than Damari Gray, but they are the outliers. But if you look at the top teams in, in, in world football, they are paying somewhere between 40 to 50 million pounds for the majority of their players. So if you go and look at the makeup, the, the composition of the Man City squad and you take out Grealish, I think 90% of their players are somewhere between 40 and 50 million and Calvin fell in that in that range. Because the, the criticism here is that it makes Leeds United look weak under the circumstances or is, is player power agent power just a, a reality of football? It's completely reality of, of the game. Ultimately, you know, the player decides the player decides where he where he wants to go, and uh, we can you can make that decision of saying, well, we're not going to sell the player, and you, and you have that you have that power, but then you have a player who is disgruntled. Um, you, you haven't given him the opportunity, potentially that they the, in both of these cases, I think opportunities that they they deserve, and then they're a depreciation asset because they're. They're not going to re-sign a contract with you. Their contract's going to come down and you're going to get less, less and less. I mean, you know, Sadio Mane had a, a year left on his contract, went for 35. So you don't want to be in, in, in that position. And I think overall, I think we did, a, you know, we did a good job. You know, we kept Rafinha, who is a, you know, a world-class talent for, for two years. He was fully motivated throughout that period. I mean, when he, when he went to step up to take the penalty at Brentford, there was part of me thinking, you know, let's hope he's not doing the calculations <laughs> from a personal perspective. But he gave us absolutely everything. Similarly with Calvin, when we failed in the playoffs and Aston Villa made a, they made a life-changing offer to Calvin and I sat down with Calvin and said, look, Calvin, I understand you want to play at the, the highest level. Give us one more season. You will get us promoted. You'll be a local hero. You'll play for England. And then you can come to us when one of the top clubs in the world comes and wants to, to buy you because we don't want you to go to Aston Villa as a competitor. And I think, although it's frustrating... The reality is, is that until you get right to the top of, of, of world football, the risk of your players leaving is always going to be there. Um, when I was at Arsenal, uh, we had to sell Cesc Fabregas and, and Thierry Henry to Barcelona, and we had to sell Robin Van Persie to Manchester United. So even a club who had been, you know, Arsenal at that time had been in the Champions League for 10 years in a, in a row, you're still um, at risk of your players wanting to go and play at a, at a higher level. And I think our role is to ensure that it's the best for the club. And I think actually the fact that we have players who are um, sought after by teams like Man City and Barcelona is actually a sign of strength rather than a sign of weakness. Right, because fans fans won't like hearing that because I'm, in response to Andrea's um, chat with David Ornstein and Phil Hay, he said our, our role is as a, as a stepping stone club. Do you think that fans will tolerate that for long? I don't think it's... So I don't see it as our role, but I do think it's the reality. And I think the question is, is can you turn that reality into a, into a strength? And the reality is, is that the best players in the world are going to want to play in the Champions League and they're going to want to win trophies and they're going to want to earn salaries that are out of, out of Leeds United's range. Now that is frustrating and Andrea and the 49ers and our long-term aim is that we can give players a platform that gives them everything that they want. That's the vision for Leeds United that they will, they will not want to leave because Leeds United is playing in the Champions League. It can pay them the salaries they want and we're, we're competing for trophies. In the interim though, the reality is that players are going to have aspirations beyond Leeds United. And the job for us is to ensure that's a strength. And we can do it as a strength in two ways. One, we can ensure that we maximise the value of them and reinvest all of that money back into, back into talent. And we've done that this summer. And I think the squad, Andrea was asked the question, is the squad stronger? And I think with the six players, six, seven players that we've got, I think the squad is stronger than it was last, last season. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is we can use it as a competitive advantage in recruitment at both academy level and um, by signing 
younger unknown players in the transfer market because we have case studies for them about what a platform Leeds United can be. And ultimately, we don't want to be selling our best players, but if we can recruit players both at academy level and at, and at international level by telling them Leeds is a fantastic club to, you know, to elevate your trajectory, to go and get ultimately to go and play at the top levels of the game. That's a competitive advantage and that'll make Leeds United better. Because people want to hear that it's, it's going to be us that gets to you know, take them on that trajectory. But is, is that just not a reality? Is, is Leeds just simply not wealthy enough right now? It's not about it's it's not about wealth. It's about it's about fo- it's it's partly about wealth, but it's more about footballing success. I mean, the reality is, you know, Newcastle United have exactly this issue. Newcastle United have no they have no boundaries in terms of in terms of the money that they could spend, other than other than financial fair play. But they have the challenges of the best players in the world don't want to go and play in a team for two years, which is going to be upper mid table in the Premier League. They want to be playing for Champions League teams, and so we are evolving. We are being able to sign better players and retain better players than we have previously. I mean, I think the first three transfers I did when I was at, when I started at Leeds United were selling people to Burnley. We're not doing that anymore. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Should we have um, got Calvin and Rafinha tied down to contracts before that? Uh, was there ever scope for that to try and head this one off at the pass, or even just to bake in more value? By by the at the stage we we, we were at, um, I mean they were neither of the contracts were disastrous for both of them. But I think after the first year in the Premier League that that Rafinha had, you know, we were looking at only being able to keep him for one year more anyway. So at that point, there's there's no interest for him and his agent to sign a new contract. And I think similarly with Calvin, once he was, you know, named the best players at the Euros, I think he probably saw that there was, you know, one more season and then and then probably the opportunity to move on. Because that starts to point towards Leeds being a, a, a selling club and a willing seller at that. Is that fair? Um, well, I think we're a, I don't, I think we're a trading club rather than a selling club. You know, the, 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 you're a selling club if you sell and you and you and you trouser the money. You know, we are we are selling and then we're reinvesting. And I think there's also some there's also something for for you know for a club like Leeds United and the scale that we are. 
is to have two players in the team who are collectively worth 100 million and could get injured, lose form. Is just not responsible, you know. When we look at our squad value, that need that that needs to be spread across, you know, spread across the squad and protect ourselves against players who might lose form or might be injured. So I think we're a, we're a team which is a very very attractive destination, you know. Outside of the top six, I think we can go toe to toe with anybody in terms of trying to recruit, and I think we've proved that. And even in the case of of, of Teketala, you know, we came a very close second to a team that has just won the Italian title and is going to be playing in the Champions League. So I think. Uh, from a recruitment perspective, I see us, ourselves as a as a buying club who are, um, you know, have a very attractive proposition have created a competitive advantage. And if you look at the last two seasons in the Premier League, we've sold we sold two players, and I think we bought fifteen or sixteen probably. On the Ketela, as Billy Bremner said, you get note for coming second. That's um, true. So it's all fine and well saying we came close to getting him, but we didn't get him, did we? That's that's the reality. And we're talking a club record bid of, of around forty million euro. So. I think people are having a hard time coming to terms with understanding that if, if that money's there to go out and improve the forward line, why is there not an alternative being worked on? Um, there's an accusation of we wasted time on Charles de Ketelaer. We've seen Andrea's interview with Phil and David Ornstein and uh, Jesse in the press conference as well seems to be talking down transfers now. So can you shed some light on on, on that situation? Well, so we're, we're still looking for, for players that can make us stronger. There aren't any obvious options at, at the at the moment that are, that are well advanced, but there's still quite a long time in the window in the window to go. We've still got we've still got three weeks, so I think there's still the opportunity to do more business. In terms of uh, in terms of the Ketala, I think in terms of how the process works, we approached a number of attacking options all at the same time, of which Charles de Ketala was our was our priority. We knew it was going to be a long shot. So in terms of did we fail in it? Yes, we did, but we also showed some ambition in getting a player that I think would have been a surprise if he'd come to Leeds United. But in terms of the mechanics of it and this sort of thing of wasting time, and I've heard this talked about a, a lot, we met the player, we met the club, we had the discussions, we made our offer, and then he told us that he would prefer to go to, to AC Milan. And so whilst that has then played out in the press for three to four weeks, there's been no more time spent on that. You know, Bruges knew our offer, Charles knew our offer, and he made it clear he wanted to go to AC Milan and he was in a position where he then had to make the negotiations with AC Milan and he knew and we said we would, you know, there was potential that we'd move in another, another targets in the interim but that's the end of the conversation. So it's not like things stop at that, at that point. There's still other players being assessed at that time. There's still other players being uh, approached at that time. So there's no opportunity cost of making an offer on, on Charles and to be honest, we felt it was dead three weeks ago and it's ultimately just, it's just taken time for him to come to a terms, to agree terms with Milan. Um, but people will say, well, what, what have you done with those three weeks, though? Have you not moved on an alternative target? Because yeah. you're saying there's nothing seems to be in the in the pipeline at the minute, but is but, is there something? I mean, every day, the scouting team are redoing the stats. Victor is meeting players. We are changing our list of targets. They're being presented to Jesse. They're being presented to Jesse's backroom staff. They're being presented to the board from a financial perspective. This is an ongoing, it's an ongoing process. So it's not like, you know, we don't sit around and say we missed out on Charles Let's go to the pub. Right. The, the, you know, the process is continuing, but we're just not at a stage where, you know, we have a firm agreement with either a club or a player. And we're also not a position where we have a really clear target who's our first choice, who we know is available and, and, and within our reach. So do you think we'll get either a forward player and or a left back? I think um, uh, the funding is there, the will is there, but at the same time, 
we know we can't make the mistake of getting someone who doesn't work. So we're not going to, we're not going to panic and we're not going to get somebody who, uh, who we don't think has got a, a real chance of success because for a club of Leeds United standing, the things which are going to go killers from both a footballing perspective and a financial perspective is transfers that don't work. And we've got to do absolutely everything we can to minimise that. But have we not seen evidence of that in part at Leeds? And isn't that, is that not an inherent risk of doing any transfer business? Because you could say if you, you, you could be risk averse to the extent where you do nothing. And that, I think that's the, yeah. the fear that fans have is that the squad is not strong enough. And it's the same as we could see that midfield was weak last season. People see that the forward line and left back position there's not competition at left back. We could probably do with another attacker because we're only what one or two injuries away from being in a very similar situation again. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the um, our job is to is to balance the risk. So obviously, doing nothing, there is risk inherent in that as well. And doing the wrong thing, there's risk inherent in that. So we need to find we need to find the middle path where we where we are prudent and use the. I think we've got you know world class scouting network. We've got some world class data cap- capabilities as well, and we've got Victor who's fantastic in terms of his relationships with agents and clubs and players as is Andrea to persuade the right player to come and I think once we once we set our our, uh, our hearts on the target we're, we're we're very good at landing them and apart from Charles you know I think we're whatever it is six or seven or seven or eight eight out of eight you know we've we've landed exactly who we wanted to so I think we're in a we're in a good position we think we're in a stronger position what about the idea that the the transfer policy maybe looks a little bit um reactive or, or short-termist like people will say oh well Pascal Strike played all right at um, left back. There's an attacking left back against Cagliari, so we're probably all right there for a bit. Or Rodrigo has discovered a bit of form against Cagliari, so we don't need, we don't need another forward. Yeah, and again, I mean, obviously we're looking at the way the current squad are performing all the time, and that plays a part in our that plays a part in our our decision. And you know, so does the manager's belief in players like Junior or or Rodrigo. So they're all they're all weighed up in 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 the decision making but i don't think it's i don't think it's re, it's i don't think it's reactive that you know the clear plan was that we wanted was a young really talented nine stroke 10 and we identified that player and now he's not available there's not obvious immediate second choices but there are still um lots of names being circulated lots of work being done but also there's a and i know fans will will hate me saying this but there's also a real confidence in the squad that we've got and with Patrick, we still think there's lots to come from Rodrigo, and we feel and we think uh, you know Joey can have a uh, can have a breakthrough season. So we're not panicking. Is there a point though at which you maybe you've got to put aside the moneyball principles and maybe go for somebody who might not have potential to increase in value? Maybe buy somebody who's in their mid twenties who can spend the next three or four years at Leeds just having the prime of their career. Yeah, well, so I mean I, Terrier, for example, falls into that that bracket, yeah. doesn't it? So um, there is no prerequisite that a player has a trading on value that's not one of the requirements it's one of the things we consider so if we're going to spend a lot of money on somebody as we were with Charles you know it's a huge fee it is definitely in the consideration set that he's only 18 years old and there's probably a lot of upside in terms of what he could what he could be traded for afterwards versus signing a 31 year old who has who has nothing but we're not in a we're not using Leeds United as a trading platform just to make money if we can get the right player but you said we were a trading club but it's not. But that's not the. That's not the objective. The objective is to be as good as football as possible. And if we can buy a player who has a trade on value, then that can be that can be helpful. But if we were to find a thirty-two-year-old striker on loan for a season who we thought could do a brilliant job, and they're going to make us better this season, then we'd be completely open to that as well. So it's it's the key requirement at the moment is that you know other than the 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 under twenty-one recruitment, the key requirement is that players can deliver for us this year and they're going to make us stronger. 
And they could be an 18-year-old, they could be a 25-year-old, and they could be a 32-year-old. But of course, when we evaluate each of those options, the financials are such to them and their age and their, you know, will play a role. But ultimately, it's who's going to deliver on the pitch. Tickets and membership. Let's do that then. Great. Which I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Price of membership. I know, I guess it needs to be said at the start that, you know, football fans always want everything as cheaply as possible and they want the maximum amount of money spent on the team and uh, the board is always useless and the manager's always picking the wrong team. We always kind of default to these to these positions, but when you pick out individual things, like I think the, the season tickets are probably pretty fair uh, in terms yeah. of price, whereas I think the membership's not. I think it strikes me as too expensive. Um, again, I uh, repeat the point, I don't speak for everybody on that. It's just my personal opinion. Um, what, what do you think of the membership? So I think you've got you've got to view it in the context of all our of all our tickets, and our ticket pricing is in the bottom third of the Premier League, despite the fact we've probably got more over demand than any team in the Premier League at the moment. So you know more than the bigger clubs and, and more than the smaller clubs, and we've been really really you know I think we've had ten years of t- of ticket price freezes. We've gone up ten percent this year in a very small way, but you know I still think it represents fantastic value. You know you can take. And if any, for the supporters who've got children, you know, you can take a, a an under six for 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 five pounds fifty to a game, and an under sixteen for eleven pounds. I mean, I don't think there's any other activity you can do with a you can do you know activity you can do with a child for between five and eleven pounds. So I think that represents fantastic value. Season ticket prices are low, particularly if you've been a season ticket holder for a whole for for for, for a time. So we've got season ticket prices starting at three hundred and seventy eight pounds, which again for me is fantastic value. And then it comes on to onto membership. So I think you have to view those ticket prices with membership. I think the membership price that gets quoted to me all the time is £75, but there is a membership of £50. Yeah, but um, just to stop you for a second, the 75 quid membership is incentivized in order to push access for tickets. And ultimately, that's what people buy membership for is because they want tickets. So it, it feels a little bit to me like, well, you said um, about but, over-demand. It, it's, it starts to feel like the club are being greedy. No, so the the fifty pound, the seventy five pound, and the fifty pound. The difference is LUTV and and some priority access to the to the ticket exchange. But in terms of the first sale, you can get the same access at fifty as you can for seventy five, unless you've been a member for ten years, in which case it is seventy five. But if you've been a member for ten years, you effectively get an opportunity to buy a ticket for one in three of the matches. And in fact, it works out at more than that because not everybody applies. So I think. You know, if you just want to, if you want to get a ticket and you haven't been a member for ten years, don't get the early TV option, which I think actually delivers a lot of value, and you pay fifty pounds for, for for the membership. That is, is it expensive? It's in line with most other clubs, a little bit more expensive than some, but not significantly. And ultimately, we have a, um, we want, you know, whilst we want members to be as big as possible, if we make it cheaper, we'll have many more members, and then we've got an even bigger issue. So we, you know, it is a little bit of a, you know, we want to, we want to offer it to people who are committed to coming to games. And, you know, we have, I think we had 47,000 members last year and we're going to have, you know, we'll have a same again this year. So there is, there are people out there who feel it delivers them value for the access to tickets and the pack that they get at the LUTV subscription if they want it. Do you think we've got too many members? Should it have been capped, do you think? It's really hard because we're in this uh, this this position where we're trying to do as much as we can to reward, reward loyalty. Whilst at the same time, I think we have a responsibility of custodians of the club to try and make as many people fall in love with Leeds United as possible. I think it's an amazing gift to support Leeds United. And so I want us to have as many supporters as possible. And I want those supporters to be young. And I want the supporters to be women and from different different ethnic backgrounds, which is something you know we, 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 are, we are challenged by if you just look at our, what I think they're called, our legacy fans. So we do want to grow. We do want to grow membership. We want to grow the number of people who can come to Ellen Road. 
And I think the narrative that's played out on uh, social media is a little bit inaccurate because there's this sort of battle between, and I'm paraphrasing here, but between the, the loyal hardcore and what people call the Johnny-come-latelys. And actually, when you look at the data, that's not the case. What you had over the last 20 years is lots of Leeds fans who didn't come very often. So when they write in, they say, I've been a Leeds fan for you know 20 years. I, you've come to this game, I've come to that game. But actually when, and now they want to come to every game. And so what you've got is you've got 40,000 Leeds fans who used to come two or three times a season and now come to, and now come to every game or now want to come to every game. And that's what's caused the, the, the sort of crunch in demand versus, demand versus supply. And that's the challenge that we face. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to balance letting new supporters come and support the team at least once a season, whilst letting people who've historically come more often still come as much as they, as they used to. And we've done that in a number of ways. So that's why we introduced, you know, from a loyalty perspective, that's why I introduced this 10-year membership scam. So if you've been a season ticket holder or a member and you don't currently have a season ticket for 10 years, you get a one in three chance of coming to games. So that rewards that loyalty. Interestingly, there was only 2,000 people who fell into that category. So it wasn't a, wasn't a huge number of people and 10 years isn't, isn't that long. It was similarly when we did the away tickets, we, looked, we asked people for over a five-year period, if they come to 80% of games, they could come to this super attendee. There's only 700 people who'd been to 80% of games over five, five years. So we are rewarding that, that loyalty, which is what supporters want. But at the same time, we're trying to make it more open to new supporters, which is, which is challenging. And that's why I introduced the ballot. And the ballot was introduced because supporters were fed up with what they saw as people kind of gaming the system and having six laptops open at nine o'clock in the morning. And so we still have 50% of the tickets remaining are for that group. So if you, if you want to use your wits to try and get a ticket that way, um, then you can, but then 50% are for the ballot, which we think is a fairer way for people who are perhaps not as engaged in the system more generally can still get a ticket. But to give you some numbers, there's effectively 8,000 tickets on sale. There were 8,000 tickets on sale for Wolves. And by the time you take out the the two the, the seven to eight hundred tickets we have for the for the long standing members, you're down to seven thousand. For those seven thousand, when we went on sale for walls, we had twenty four thousand members waiting in the queue for them. And we are a little bit stuck about how we can allocate the tickets in any more for fairer way. There's two options. One is we just make them available to everybody. There's no membership and it's just a free for all. The other is that we reward some levels of loyalty, which is either you've been a long standing member or you've at least a member and it's not going to general sale and create a balance. And what we've tried to do is create a balance between the two. So a level of loyalty is rewarded, but it doesn't become a closed shop. And like there are other certain more specific gripes around things like season ticket, non-renewals, was it something like 3% around that figure? Didn't then go to the season ticket waiting list, which you've accepted money from people to be on that list. And further to that point, it seems to be a bit of an opaque process. Like people want to know where they are on that list and nobody's telling them. So on the season tickets, when people uh, don't renew, which is, by the way, is now very small because we're being successful. And then we have to look at how do we allocate those, those tickets. There's never been a commitment that they'd all go to the season ticket waiting list. So we had to, we, what we tried to do was create a balance between rewarding people who've been at the top of the season ticket waiting list. But at the same time, as you said, trying to get those members to be able to come to some games. And the challenge is, is it fairer to let someone on the season ticket waiting list come to every game? Or is it fairer to let 20 different fans come to one game? I don't know where we sat in that. So what we agreed was, was that we would, uh, we would create a split and a proportion of the tickets went to the season ticket waiting list and they've now got their season ticket and a proportion went to membership. And by the way, some go to other, we also have to move things around. So we've, we've had to, uh, 
we've got new disability access requirements, so we lost some seats to that. So they were taken away from season tickets rather than being taken away from members. There was a increased allocation for, for broadcast. We had to make some changes to the players' tickets as well. So it's not just as simple as these are non-renewed and then they go straight to the season ticket waiting list. But we are trying to balance it between allowing members to come and have a better chance of coming to games and rewarding some, some season ticket holders. Do you think communication around these issues could have been better? And I'm thinking specifically about the huge transition towards the, the digital tickets for this season. It feels like to me there's been something of, of an information black hole. And, and correct me if, if I'm wrong on that, that like fans groups, for example, that the supporters trust have, have been uh, trying to inform people on things like that. Is, is that their job or could the club have done it better? We've invested a lot of time in, in explaining it support to supporters. I went through uh, um, with our KTI head of ticketing, Percy, we went through all the complaints we got after the Wolverhampton, the, the, the launch of the Wolverhampton, which was, was a new ticketing system. And the ticket, it, it fell into sort of three, three categories. The first was we did have some um, issues with with payment, and all the people who who failed in the payment system have been given their have been given their tickets. But it was very very small. The next category was people who are still learning the new system. So, for instance, you needed to create a new password. If you had friends and family, you had to reload your friends and family, and there was a good reason for that. It was because people were linking with friends and family who weren't friends and family. It was too easy to do. We now have a process where if you're going to link with a friends and family, you have to, you had to start that process again. So there were some so so there were some issues of people just understanding how the new system worked. But the fundamental issue that we have, the fundamental complaint that we get, is people just not getting a ticket. And I understand that they're disappointed, but there's a lot of sort of outrage out there that they haven't got a ticket. And we get emails which explain all the reasons why they were more entitled to a ticket than any other supporter. And the problem is, is that every supporter defines their loyalty or defines the way the club should judge loyalty in a way that kind of best suits them. And we're just in a, in a very difficult position. So, you know, if you come over from Norway for 10 games a season, are you more or less loyal than someone who walks down from Beeston Hill and comes to 15 games? And these are the challenges. This this weight this way of, of how you reward loyalty is really, really hard. And so at the moment, we're in a system where we know there were 7,000 tickets. We know that 24,000 people tried to get them. And therefore, we know that 17,000 people are going to be hugely disappointed. And some of them are going to complain and some of them are going to take to Twitter and some of them are going to say, it's a, you know, it's a disgrace. The fundamental issue is the stadium isn't big enough. And whatever we do, at the moment, we're just in the unenviable position of just being able to choose who to disappoint in not getting a ticket. And I feel sorry for supporters who, you know, who can't come. I feel sorry for people who used to come a lot. I feel sorry. I mean, you know, there's, there's some fantastic reasons. People who you know, didn't have season tickets because they've been in, in the armed forces. People who gave up their season ticket because they were, they were seriously ill. It's really challenging. And, you know, we, we want to give as many supporters the chance to come as we, as we can. But the solution is, is increasing the capacity. And where are, where are we on that? Because we've heard from Andrea in the interview with Phil and David Ornstein that we're close to finance, um, that you've been speaking about about finance. And I, I rewind to 12 months ago when we spoke to you and you said year three, as in this season, if we stayed up after year two, you could then sort of push the button on the process properly. Is that going to yeah. happen? So we, we made good progress last year. So I'd say we, you know, last year we, we spent several hundred thousand pounds, maybe close to a million pounds in, in, in starting in starting the process in earnest and that's a full feasibility study it's technical drawings it's work from architects it's work from the it's work with and for the council it's planning consultancy it's land acquisition all of those elements are 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 well in train and we're now in a position where we need to make some decisions around financing and the phasing of of the build and it is likely that it will it will start or it's still to be decided that it will be a a, a west stand rebuild first because that's the biggest opportunity area and not only just from being able to increase the capacity 
um, but also from a facilities perspective. So, you know, we need better changing rooms, we need better referees facilities, we need better media facilities, and they're all housed that at that side. So that's going to be that's going to be the key, and then there'll be a debate whether um, it makes sense to do the north stand at the same time. So it'll be either one or two of those. It'll be either one or two of those stands. And I know, you know everyone's using this, but it is a challenging time. So since we first did the feasibility study, which was six months ago, the bill costs have gone up thirty percent. And on a West Stand rebuild, which would probably cost a hundred million pounds, that's that's a lot of money. But it is being it is being worked, and we know it's not only important because we want as many supporters to come and be able to see Leeds United as possible. But um, also, it's it's absolutely critical from a financial perspective. We're going to compete at that next level if we're going to be able to retain the types of players that we want to retain. The big gap in our in our funding is is two things: one is not playing in Europe, and two is the stadium's not business big enough. So I think the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium generates five million pounds of revenue per match, and we generate one million pounds. So across the course of the season, that's a massive gap. So as we take Leeds United to the next level, um, stadium redevelopment's right at the heart of it. So the big questions that people ask are. When is it spades in the ground is the first one. What's the capacity of that stand going to be and how much corporate will there be? So if we want to take spades in the ground first. I think we will go for planning this year. And then I think you probably, depending on the speed of planning, you're probably looking at spades in the ground. You know, you'd have a full plan. You might even start to sell it, but the spades in the ground process would start the summer after next summer. So two, two years from two years from today. I think in terms of capacity, to do it properly, to get to 55, it's probably a combination of west and north. The way that we would do it is we'd try not to lose any capacity in the um, during the course of the season. So the technique normally is you build over the uh, you build over the existing stand and everyone stays where they are. They then move up into the into the seats above and then you build you build the, the lower level and, and so that process takes takes two years. And then the, the number of corporate seats hasn't been um, hasn't been agreed, but it will be a mix of uh, GA general admission yeah general admission what's called premium general admission which is a general admission seat but maybe with some bar facilities and then there'll obviously be some corporate in that side as well and the fundamental and, and, and we've done this at both the stadium developments I've done at both Arsenal and West Ham it was the corporate seats which ensured there was no price rises for the, for the general admission so I know supporters don't really want corporate seats but actually they're the things which enable you to take the financial step up, which we need to take up, but still protecting the entry ticket prices for for the for the for the, for the, for the normal fans. So you're talking about a big West Stand, North Stand will take it to 55 because there's been some discrepancy. Like when we spoke last year, I know it was kind of a, a loose kind of 55 to 60 we were speaking about, but obviously people then start to quote, "Oh, Kinnear said 60." Andrea in the interview has said 55. Is that a movable feast? It, or have you got a figure in mind? It, it is. It is movable because it depends. the The variances depends on how you treat the corners. In between, right. in between the stands, and whether you wrap a north stand round into the um, into the uh, east stand, so that you're talking that bowl shaped rather than individual stands, it, exactly. Okay, exactly. And we mentioned south stands last year as well as something that may eventually be something that comes down and gets rebuilt. But again, there's the issues of the capacity there. But what do you foresee a timescale on the on the whole thing? Maybe just to give fans fans a flavour of it. So two years before spades in the ground, which means sort of three to four. Yeah, I mean, it's, before you get in a new West Stand, it's a, it's a, I think it's a five-year process before you get something which is shiny and 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 finished. But what sort of spec are we talking? Then? Are we talking Tottenham spec? Because a hundred million quid gets you—that's about what Liverpool spent on their main stand, yeah. isn't it? I, I would, if you're going to look at a model of at the moment, our th- the thinking around the model we use is much more like the Liverpool model. So you effectively build four stands, and the stands are great, but they are they are functional and they de- deliver for supporters and they deliver financially, but they perhaps don't have the, um, 
the kind of architectural flair which costs you more money than somewhere like the Tottenham Stadium does where where the budget was you know, ultimately well over a billion. Is there stuff you can do to the infrastructure in the meantime? And I'm thinking particularly about the experience of watching the Women's Euros final in the East Stand on minuscule TVs. And it's just that it's a minor, it's a singular gripe, but are there things that we can do with that? Can we have a word with Hisense, maybe get some TVs? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are, I mean, we're in a continuing, we're trying to improve some of the areas. It's challenging because the the, the infrastructure for the stands is, everything was done on, a, on, the, on the West side. It's, it's, it's just really old. I think it's the oldest stand in the Premier League. And on the East side, it was done at such a budget. So, you know, when you look at the lower tier of the East stand where it's difficult to get into the seats if you're over five foot nine because they built it on a, uh, on a terrace rather than building it properly. And we've looked at reprofiling that. You know, it's four million quid to reprofile the bottom of that stand to do it properly. So we are, you know, we have made some improvements. We've made some, we continue to make some improvements in catering, going cashless has, cashless has helped. There is some talks with Hisense on, on audiovisual facilities. But the reality is, is that until the stadium's new, I think the um, the the match day experience is going to feel traditional <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than uh, enhanced. That's a very good political word. Um, Thorpe Arch. Then um, we've learned from Andrea that you've reached out to Marcelo Bielsa and would like to rename the training ground after him. I mentioned on the Phil Hay show that we released on on Friday about how Wilkinson is one to factor in because it was his brainchild, and that's not to take away from the idea of naming it after Marcelo yeah. at all. If he doesn't accept it, would you consider that for Howard Wilkinson, or will you be staying at Thorpe Arch? I guess is the bigger question. Yeah, so we'll we'll be staying at Thorpe Arch certainly for the short term. I think the, the challenge with Thorpe Arch is is more what we do with the academy than than what we do with a, from a first team perspective. So we you know we had had visions to move either the academy or the first team train to make ground to Matthew Murray, but in fact that's now going to be the community park life scheme, which I think is is much more appropriate because it's a part of our city that really needs an uplift, and I think the foundation running. What will be a world class community facility there is 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 going to be fantastic. As far as the as the training ground, ultimately we will need to expand to move the academy academy out. The ideal is is that you would have an academy and a first team facility that are next to each other, but but have a, an element of separation which they don't which they don't have at the moment. And in terms of naming it, I'm I'm very confident that um, uh, Marcelo, you know, and this is not to diminish what Howard achieved or the fact it was part of his vision, but we felt that. Um, um, particularly as the training ground is known as the all the signage around it being academy, we thought you know Marcelo's focus and, and passion for player development it was just appropriate and it was and it was current. And I know um, I received a really angry letter from someone that it wasn't going to be called the Howard Wilkinson Academy this, this morning. You can't please everybody, but we thought that you know after you know, knowing Marcelo, you know Marcelo is not a man who's going to want a statue. He's not a man that's going to want something grandiose, and we thought that this was was a befitting way of of honouring him in a way that he'd respect and 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 actually would, you know, protect his legacy. Uh, where are we at with the Thorpe Arch lease? Because that's only got a few years left on it now, hasn't it? Um, I think it was was it. I'm trying to think back to when it was sold and uh, the march of time, but um, it was under the Krasner regime, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, post everything blowing up um there has been a, i can't talk about there has been a change on that so we're protected for for protect for quite some time okay not? fair enough and and the women's team as well who uh are in moved closer into the club is that fair to say yeah i mean the, the, the women's team have gone from you know being thrown out of the club in the chilino era to really being a central part of it today so the the key for it was and i think the committee that ran the women's team were very sensible and they didn't want to give the registration over to the club till they felt the club was going to value it and treasure it properly so it's taken a it's been a three-year process for the committee to feel that the club are supporting the women's team enough and then the registration has been handed over 
So the women's team is now part of the club, whereas even till last season, it was still actually run by the committee and the club were just funding it. The challenge on the women's team is, is the amount of investments that required to take it to the level that we wanted to is really significant. And so it's, it's at the moment, it's, it's, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's quite a gradual process, but I think we've made big steps in professionalizing it. So the ladies now, they get to play at Ellen Road, they get to train at Thorpe Arch. We play for their general manager and their coach. We pay for their kit. They get all the support of the backroom staff. So if they need, you know, a goalkeeping coach, we'll take someone from the from from the the academy and and, and they'll work with them. So it's much much more integrated. But they were kicked out during COVID from Thorpe Arch, weren't they? They were, I mean, for, 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 for very for very valid for very valid reasons. We had to protect we had to protect the first team. Okay, um, and just looking at uh, one of the things that concerned me about the women's team was that we're aware through sponsorship of of the players there that they were being made to pay their own registration fees of two hundred and fifty quid to play this year. Can you? Um, shed yeah, some light I'm on not. That? Quite, I'm not quite sure how that how that happened. But Ju- Julie, who was running, who's who's moving, and and uh, uh, we have a new uh, head coach and general manager called Rick Parsmore, and I don't know whether the baton got dropped in between. But when I, we were made aware of it, obviously they're not going to pay their registration fees. So that's fees. that's all being taken yeah, care of by the club. Good. So finally then, this this season, what represents a good return on it? Andrea said 10th to 14th. I tend to feel that I'd be about okay. Um, where do you sit on this? I think for me, I mean, from a positional perspective, that's the target. You know, I think if you can, if we can establish ourselves as a club which finishes in the top half of the league on a regular basis, that is probably a realistic medium-term target. And that gives you the ability to, that when you have a good season... First of all, it gives you the ability that when you have a bad season, you're not in relegation trouble. You're just lower mid-table, and that's certainly where we we need to be. And you know, if you look at a Leicester or a West Ham, they're probably in that position. And then when they have a good season, they're you know they're, they're you know they're challenging for Europe and, may, and and maybe sneak a sneak a European position. So that's where I think I think we want to be. I think from a a footballing perspective, for me, it's it's just more about delivering performances both home and away that supporters can be proud of and we can get excited about again. And, you know, last season just felt, it felt like a challenge. Every game was a challenge. There was a whole load of pressure. There was a whole load of stress and we want fans to be enjoying it again. You know, this this will be, should, you know, should be our first season with uh, crowds fully back playing football where we're not being relegation threatened. But I think, you know, we need to, and, and the team are very conscious of this, you know, we need to be performing absolutely our capacity. You know, the difference between finishing 10th and finishing, you know, 16th is three, four wins, it's really, really close. So um and about ten million quid. It's really significant. Yeah, it's three million pounds a place now. Yeah. So um the team know that that that, that that's the obje- that's the objective. I think it's achievable and uh and I'm excited about it. I'm excited to get out, you know, put last season behind us and uh and you know integrate the new players and for Jesse to be able to, be able to prove um how talented a coach is. And do they get bonuses for finishing in the top half? Uh, we're negotiating the bonus bill at Paul at the moment, actually. So I broke away from discussions with the uh, with the leadership council. So this was a welcome, a welcome, a welcome break. To be honest, <laughs> you mentioned Leicester actually just there in passing. What's your take on the phrase the Leicester model? Because it's been bandied around a lot. Andrea mentioned it uh, yesterday. Uh, sorry, on Friday rather um, in the interview with Phil and uh, and David Ornstein. It's it's been held up quite frequently as something we need to to pursue. But Leicester don't seem to be in particularly rude health at the minute. Yeah, well, if the Leicester model is um, staying up on the last day of the season, then winning the title the season afterwards, then I'm all for it, um, which is, I think, what they did. For me, I don't really see it as a model. I think I think what Leicester have done is they have been the only team which has successfully cracked, cracked the top six in a meaningful way for a couple of seasons. But I think, actually, rather than it being a model, for me, it's just the reality of where clubs our level are, is that if you can develop 
good talent, either through recruitment or through your academy, there is the likelihood that that, that talent is going to want to move on. Or in fact, there is the almost inevitability that that talent will want to move on. When that talent wants to move on, I think your options are to try and monetize it to the best of your ability and then reinvest that back in the squad. Now, I don't think that's a conscious decision to, to do that. That's more about, that's the, uh, it's a fact of life that that's likely to, likely to happen. So in our model, you know, I think our model is to have, is to be the best at recruitment and the best at coaching and to deliver the best team. If we're in a position where we need to, um, to sell players or players want to leave, it's better to be selling great players that you can mon- that you can get great fees for and you can reinvest that back in the squad. I think Leicester have done that successfully, but I'm not sure whether it's a model or it's just a necessity of 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 where they are. But I think you know what what they have done and and what we need to do is we need to continue to make our academy world class and we need to continue to have world class recruitment. And those are the pillars which are going to get us from a team which struggled in the bottom third to a team which is in the middle third and looking upwards, not down. Are we still budgeting for 17th? I know this frustrates people. We do budget for 17th and we budget for 17th and it's all about financial responsibility and prudence. You know, what we don't want to do is assume that we're going to be getting lots of cash that we end up not making. But there's a very big difference between the budget, which really just sits with our finance director and myself and the board and what the football ambitions are. And those two things are completely separate. Because people do confuse them, I think, don't they? They hear you say we budget for 17th, which means we're aiming for 17th. Well, the team confused it last year. Um, but um, uh, yes, it, you know they're absolutely separate. You know, very very clearly for the for the team. And you know, this is this is the thing when we look at the team bonuses, and the team will be bonused for a top pass finish. They won't be bon- they won't be bonused for staying up. So I'm pretty sure that Fulham, um, Nottingham Forest will be having their bonus set on staying up. Our bonus for our team and for our backroom staff and the club is not on on staying up. It is just it's purely a financial measure to make sure we manage the club responsibility responsibly you know for us it's very much um 10th to 12th well thank you for coming in we always appreciate it a pleasure really really enjoyed it and hopefully um hopefully i've cleared up uh some of the questions and uh, and some of the issues that fans have and i would you know all i would ask is that is that fans you know at every level bear with us you know we've got a lot of great staff who are working really hard to um try and make the club we talk a, a lot internally about trying to make the club great again we are trying to make the club great again it's not without its challenges but I tell you, the ethos at the club is to put the supporters first. I know sometimes fans who you know can't get a ticket or when the kit's delayed um, are frustrated, but but we are working hard day in, day out, both at Thorpe Arch and, and the training ground to make supporters proud to be part of this great club. I almost forgot the kit. Yeah, I foolishly brought it up. I know, I'm not going to talk about the design because some people hate the away kit. Some people love it. It's always the same. Some people are somewhere in the middle. Um, everyone will have their, their own opinions on it, but the supply chain issues have not been great this season. It feels like it's always an issue for Leeds, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the... Uh, there's been... I mean, this. let's take this year as, a, as, a, as, the, as the first point. This was um, Adidas issues created by the fact that Vietnam, where the, where the factory that makes a Leeds kit shut down for three months during COVID... And that has been challenging and the delay is unacceptable. I would like to say, you know, Adidas have been a great partner of ours. I think they've delivered us some fantastic kit. They're great supporters of the club. They treat us much more like a top tier club, um, which not all suppliers do. So we are we are part of their strategic plan to build the club and, and grow the club going forwards. But they have been hit by COVID-related supply issues, which are really unfortunate and 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 we're, and we're, and we're trying to address. But I think ultimately in the end, we'll get there with um, with three great kits and just so supporters know, the kits for the season, the next season, season after this. So 23-24. 23-24 are being signed off now. So we've got the samples on my desk. So just so, so we know, you know, this is not like we do things late. You what know, are they look like? I think they're the best ever. 
you said this last year and look at the away kit, which actually I quite like. I'm, I like. I'm just pulling your leg. I think um, it's a um, the kit set. The way we look at it is is we, the only metric that we can really look at is not what people say on Twitter. The metric that we look at is is in is in sales. And if you make a kit that people don't like, it doesn't sell, and that does happen. But since we've we've been um, running the club, we haven't had a fail on the kit front, and we've had kits that people are like people hated the bus stop kit or the bus uh, yeah, yeah. bus seat kit, and then they absolutely loved it. They hated the pink and grey, and then. Pablo put one in the bottom of the corner to get us back to the Premier League, and 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 they love it again. So I think um, I think we've had more, you know, much more hits than misses, and it certainly certainly goes to show to be shown in terms of the sales. And and you know, from a domestic perspective, you know, bear in mind, you know, the, the club stores are selling around Leeds. We pretty much go toe to toe with with half of the top six, so we are up there with the top six. The gap at the moment is just that we don't have the international sales that they have, and that's the next level, and that's that comes through playing in Europe. From a domestic level, our our retail businesses is it's difficult to imagine the club being more healthy than than ours. And we might get a yellow away kit at some point. Well, <laughs> you want it more yellow than the one you just got? That's not the yellow that I wanted. <laughs> do you do you think actually? I mean, I am joking about that. But do you think maybe if two years ago you delivered a what you class as a traditional yellow, if you delivered that, that people might be who don't like the the mad away kit, the the tie dye one this season might have been a bit, a little bit more tolerant of it. I think people are just waiting to say, please, can we just have like a, a traditional yellow, a Leeds yellow? To be honest, we leave it up to the to the retail team and to the people at Adidas who just know, you know, they know how to design great kits. They know, they know what's going to sell. And we had exactly the same issue at, at Arsenal where supporters who remember the 71 Cup final just wanted that ye- every year. yellow away kits every year. And that, that's, that's not the way to, to get to it. And actually, you know, they are... They're an important part of the club, but they're not the, 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 the you know they're not the only target audience. Mm-hmm. Just on the you mentioned about being treated like a top tier club, it doesn't feel like it. And you look at the the merch that's in the shop. There's a lot of sort of generic Adidas stuff. I think people would like to see when you look. I mean, like Arsenal is basically just a fashion brand these days, isn't it? Some of the stuff that they get, the bespoke like leisure wear. Is there ever any scope for something like that? Because I personally look at the Adidas stuff in the in the shop, and I'm not particularly inspired by yeah. it. It's the journey that we're on with them, and what we've had to do is we've had to prove that we've got the volumes. And if you look at the, if you look, if I could show you the training wear that I've got on my desk for next season, it couldn't be more, it couldn't be more bespoke, it couldn't be more leads. So we've had to prove the case that we are worthy of, you know, factory space, and that the volumes justify not having, you know, the, the, the you know, the kind of standard kits. But we're definitely moving in that direction. I think the kits are going to become more highly designed, more personal, more personalised to Leeds United, and and you know. The vision is that nothing should be generic. Where do we sit in relation to someone like Arsenal? So you said we, we do about 300,000. I read somewhere online they do about 800,000 shirts a season. Is, is that a, about a fair yeah, comparison? I would, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, um, I was there uh, nine years ago, but I would imagine from their split that they would do 300,000 domestically and 500,000 internationally. And that's a, that's a guess, whereas we do 300,000 domestically. So domestically we are, and you know, Arsenal's domestic retail turnover will be very similar to ours. The next step is is for your kit partner, whether that would be Nike or Adidas, to be wholesaling internationally for you and for there to be for kids in Indonesia to be wearing it. And at the moment we don't have that fan base. Well, you know, our international fan base is largely expat driven rather than truly truly international. So you got historic pockets in like Ireland, Norway, yeah. Australia, America, so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. But you expect us to grow in the States, I would imagine, given Jesse Marsh and the American players that we've got on the team. Yeah, the um I think it'll be it, it should be a great growth market for us. I think one of the things that uh um my experience of, of of having international players in in the squad and whether they generate the you know the growth in the market is they have to be good 
if they fail, if they don't, if they don't play, if they're not successful, then it doesn't do you any favors in the, in the domestic market at all. And we had a, um, a player called Miachi at, uh, um, at Arsenal, who's a rising star in, in Japanese football. Arsenal never played him. And actually it damages your reputation in the country because you're sort of seen as disrespecting their top talent. So, um, but I don't think that's an issue because I think, I think both, uh, Brendan and Tyler are going to be uh, going to be stars this year. And then final point then before we do say goodbye is tomorrow Wolves looking forward to being back. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait. I mean the uh, I think everybody at the club is uh, is itching to get going. The, the, I mean I know fans feel the the off season is is challenging and so do we we want to get to into the rhythm of of playing games again and having a full Ellen Road and and I know that the crowd will be superb and everyone's going to be really optimistic and uh, we just want to hope we can get off to a good start and hope it's not one of those uh, games where your season's over at half time. <laughs> well, let's uh, have a chat again soon and hopefully under happier circumstances than when we're reflecting on a good season that's in front of us. Perfect. Thanks, Angus. Thanks, Dan. The Square Ball Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 